0: One very grim year and three really good journalists. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. The author, most recently, of The Madness of Crowds, Douglas Murray writes for the London Spectator. Kim Strassel writes the Potomac Watch column for the Wall Street Journal, her own most recent book, Resistance at All Costs, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. The editor of Commentary Magazine, John Podhoretz, is co-host of the GLOP podcast, and a columnist for the New York Post. In recent years, John has devoted himself to magazine and newspaper work. But I'm going to mention John's most recent book, which appeared in 1993, because I love it still. It is one of the most insightful and funniest and most engrossing books ever written about the presidency. John Podhoretz, 1993, Hell of a Ride, Backstage at the White House Follies. Douglas, Kim, and John, thanks for joining me all right we begin our review of a stinker of a year as we must with the 45th chief executive of the united states the wall street journal president trump's musings about running again in 2024 are scrambling the calculus for the large field of fellow republicans considering bids close quote john is donald trump going to retire to mar-a-lago and play golf (laughs) Or is he going to attempt to dominate the Republican Party for four years? I think he will play a role
1: in American public life uh, that is whatever role he wishes to play, by which I mean I think he loves being the center of attention, rallies, all that sort of thing that is so important to him, whether or not he actually wants to get his hands dirty with policy choices, uh, policy fights, uh, personnel matters like who should be the next Senator from Nebraska or something like that. That hard
0: work of politics.
1: That I don't know. I mean, the sort of the the nitty gritty of daily politics that is the meat and stuff of being the leader of a party. Uh, But he will be the leader of his own band However, he wishes to define that, and that will, he will play a role unlike any role that any former chief executive has ever
0: played. All right. Kim, I'm going to quote you in the journal. This is a longish quote, but this is an issue we just have to deal with. Using the virus as an excuse, Democratic and liberal groups brought scores of lawsuits, this is before the, the election now, to force states to change their balloting rules. Many democratic politicians and courts happily agreed. States mailed out ballots to everyone. Judges disregarded, disregarded statutory deadlines for receipt of votes. They scrapped absentee ballot witness requirements. States set up curbside voting and drop-off boxes. They signed off on balloting, ballot harvesting. The fix was in before anyone started counting votes." Close quote. Do you mean to say that the election really was stolen?
2: Well, not stolen illegally. And I think that that's a really important distinction. I mean, I have dug into all of this. I, I get emails constantly with all of these theories about, you know, the Dominion voting machines, et cetera. I have not found anything to suggest that the election was stolen in the way that a lot of Republicans would like to say that the election was stolen. I think that's a very different question from whether or not you can set up an electoral process, a voting process that advantages one party over another. And look, it's it's no coincidence that when Nancy Pelosi was reelected speaker in 2018, her number one bill, her top priority, HR1 was on voting reform. It wasn't on climate change or immigration law or any of the things that they had campaigned on. It was on changing the rules of elections in ways that democrats feel uh, advantage their party so uh same day registration uh ballot harvesting they have a lot of groups out there that have practiced all of this in places like california for years they know how to do it um you know and, and my attitude toward republicans is it was right out there for everyone to see. Right, uh, The lawsuits were all filed for everyone to see. You had an obligation to either stop those changes in electoral law or to go out there and hustle on the street the way that they did and get those votes in. Um, and they got outmaneuvered before anyone ever started counting the votes. Um, so my point is only that, uh, you know, this is this is I think that this election has really exposed That This question of access to the ballot is really important. The integrity of the ballot is really important as well. Um, And when you are doing mail-in votes, you are removing all of the practice of voting from the eyes of election officials. So it's a moment for, I think, conservatives to to decide that they need to engage on this question of voting rules um, in a way that doesn't deny anyone the right to vote. But also sets a level playing field for everyone involved to make sure that people can have confidence in the in in the votes that and how they're counted and and what where we get in the end.
1: Can I just say so, that I think Kim yeah, brings yeah. up something very important, which is that in twenty eighteen, for example, the ballot harvesting problem. So in California, uh, part of the reason that that Democrats had this um, overwhelming victory in twenty eighteen uh, in the House. Was that they had perfected ballot harvesting in California, and and ballot I mean, harvesting is somebody is, oh there's right.
0: a nursing home, and somebody says I'll take all your ballots and vote and and deliver them for you. That's ballot harvesting.
1: Exactly. An and sometimes you're
2: paid to do that.
0: Right, right,
2: right. But okay. in any
1: case, so uh, Democrats made brilliant use of the of of newly legal ballot it harvesting was legal in California, and they used it. It was totally it. legal, and right. they did it. And Republicans were outmaneuvered and they got slaughtered in the House in California in 2018. That did not happen in the House in California in 2020 because they were prepared, and they knew it was coming, and they flipped a, a th- two or three or four, four seats four back. Four at the moment, right. Right. They flipped four seats back because that advantage was removed once they knew how to do it. The great blunder of 2020, which I think Kim is hinting at, was that was that republicans didn't say okay the rules are changing there's a pandemic uh there are gonna there's gonna be all this sort of liberal uh voting i mean there's we're liberalizing how to vote instead <laughs> donald trump and republicans screamed and yelled and said no one should vote early don't vote early it's all gonna steal the election from us rather than get the machine going to participate as fully as possible in that process. And there, we don't know how many votes were left sitting at home because of that, because Donald Trump decided that he was gonna try to delegitimize mail-in voting when it had become not only legal, but much easier than doing anything
0: else. They failed the Republic. I have to say, my own response to all this is, I was reading the Wall Street Journal, Kim Strassel was writing about this I don't know whether you also writing the unsigned editorials, but the, the rando, the unsigned editorials were commenting on this. There must have been two or three major editorials about the way the rules were changing. And naive little Robinson sitting in California thought, ah, the Trump organization, this time around, they've got professionals running the campaign. They've got plenty of money. They're on this. They weren't on it at all, were they?
2: No, I mean, they weren't on the new rules, as John so eloquently said, said more eloquently than I did, is that, yeah, I mean, they did better in California. But the the problem was, is that you now had all of this in Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. And those were the places that you needed to have your guys out doing exactly the same thing that Democrats were doing, which, by the way, Democrats were out there on college campuses, you know, in Wisconsin, just ushering people through same day registration. Come on, folks, you know. Right. Um, and, Right. And we weren't doing things like that. We were reaching. I mean, well, conservatives were getting reached in other ways, but we weren't engaging in the way, as John said, that this election was rolling this year.
0: Right. Douglas, I hope you've been paying detailed attention now. Uh, we bring you in for the. Uh, this is this is this is the utility of Douglas Murray in this particular podcast. Podhoritz and Strauss will talk about the nitty gritty, and then we float you in to give us the, wow. the the elegant the 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 view of the view from the rise and fall of empires. Claire Luce used to say. John Podhoritz and I knew her in her final years back in Washington. And Claire Luce used to say, and I know she used to say it because she said it to me that history would give, give even the most significant figure one sentence. Churchill saved Britain, Lincoln freed the slaves. The sentence for Donald J. Trump.
3: I would think one point was, just came from the discussion that just occurred. Who could have predicted that Donald J. Trump wouldn't have been on top of the details? Um, who could have predicted or expected that? I actually know somebody. I spoke to somebody who knows him. Who uh, in uh, I was in Washington DC at the election. I spoke the next day to somebody who knows him, who said, uh, again, maybe everyone said this in hindsight, uh, claimed to have said to him at the very beginning of the presidency. You've got to get on top of the voter registration issue. You've got to get. You've got to make sure you you don't allow the next election to be stolen or um, done in this way. Uh, and uh, I'm assuming that a lot of people pretending or saying now they told the president that. But I I, I suppose the only, whether elegant or not, eagle eye view I can give on this is is as follows. It would strike me as being a quite important priority of people of all political inclinations in America, that you try to work in the next four years to at least having infrastructure in place that means that you agree on who wins in 2024. (laughs) It would strike me as being to your advantage as a republic uh, if you could get there. And by the way, one, one reason, one reason I say that is because, you know, the important thing about it is not just winning elections, but losing them and knowing you've lost. Yes. 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 Um, Very good point. Actually. And, 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 you know, I was so struck by the fact that the Democrats wasted the last four years in my view. Uh, they wasted it in a uh, moral and political term, because it seemed to have massive got the presidency, but, uh, it struck me that they lost the opportunity to listen to what America was trying to tell them in 2016 because they, they wasted their time and everyone else's with all these- whoa, 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 whoa. Crack
0: whoa, whoa. Crack. What, what was America trying to tell the Democratic Party? And
3: Oh, that th- th- we know that Donald Trump is all of the things you're telling us he is and we're going to vote for him anyway. We know that. I see, I see. It would strike me as being one message. So, So here's the thing. The Democrats waste four years of everyone's time making crock claims about Russian conspiracies and collusions. And when they run out of Russians, they get some Ukrainians in. And it goes on and on. And they don't listen. To the annoyed and justified grievances of the American people in 2016. So there's four years wasted there. And now we risk the the next four years being wasted with Republicans talking about dead Venezuelan leaders and dominion voting machines and much more. And the problem of all of this is, is that when you lose and you know you've lost, you can process through all of the stages of grief. And If you don't know that you've lost, you get stuck, and we've had this in my own country, you get stuck on the, is it the second or the third one, bargaining, trying to make the thing unhappen that has happened. Democrats spent the last four years bargaining with the 2016 election. And the risk it seems to me now is that Republicans spend the next four years bargaining with the 2020 election. And it's a catastrophe, not just for America, but for the world, because we need you to agree.
1: But you know this has been going on now for two decades i would say the only election uh in this century uh if you count 2000 as being in this century i don't want to play the game about whether or not the century begins in 01 or zero but let's say the century was um was 2012. um because if you had 2000 florida was decided Right. Uh, by the Supreme Court. Right. 2004, Democrats said there was a significant uh, s- tranche of left wing opinion that said that the election had been stolen in Ohio by Diebold voting machines. Mm-hmm. A view championed. Oh, by really?
0: I didn't remember the, that. Oh, really?
1: Yeah, so the, that was their uh, argument. Yes. Oh, yeah. You, you remember that? Ken? It was, and it was championed yeah. by Christopher Hitchens, who just happened to be at mm-hmm. Kenyon College on Election Day, delivering a lecture and said, all these people told me they couldn't vote and that the voting machines screwed them up. So that's 04. In 08, obviously Obama won a gigantic victory, but almost immediately there arose this idea that he could should not have been president because he was supposedly not born in the United States. And then in 2016, Hillary Clinton and various other people said Trump was not elected legitimately because of Russia, right. only because... Mitt Romney lost by four points in 2012 and said that night, I lost, and everyone said he lost, and then the Republican Party said, I guess we lost, we better do an autopsy to figure it out. That is the only election in this, Mm -hmm. out of these six or something like that, where there was no question of the legitimacy of the victory. And so this is now a feature of our politics, and it's very destructive, and
0: it's now going to get worse. Hang on. You said the Republican Party committed itself to performing an autopsy in 2016, yeah, and it 2012. did. 2012. Thank you. 2012. 2012. Thank you, and it did. And there was a, a a big, rather pompous report, which made a, on the other hand, made a certain amount of political sense. Obvious political sense. The Republican Party needs to cease to be the party of white people. It needs to be the party of uh, within I didn't white say people. It, it was
1: needs... a good autopsy.
0: I didn't say no, it no, was no, no, a no. no, no. But but, but listen, there's this something coming at you with this. It needs to reach out more to minorities. It needs to become more compelling to working people. And guess who made that happen? Mm-hmm. The numbers suggest that Donald Trump did really remarkably well. He didn't? There's no flipping, no transformation. But he got he carried. He not only carried the Cuban vote in Miami, but he he did quite well among the larger Hispanic vote. There are border counties in Texas that Hillary Clinton carried by 60 percent last time around, that Donald Trump either carried narrowly or came within four or five points of carrying. In other words, heavily Hispanic counties that went very hard for Donald Trump in Texas, of all places. So. So has Donald Trump. Oh, here's, let's put it this way. Remember the Emerging Democratic Majority? That's a 2002 book. And it said yeah. the demographics are moving so strongly toward the Democrats. It was, it was actually quite a sophisticated book, I remember. But what it came down to was this. White people are a shrinking proportion of the population. The Republican WASP elite is a shrinking portion of white people. And the Democratic Party has working people and minorities And their numbers are just going to swamp the Republicans. And that has not happened. Kim Strassel, why not?
2: Well, you know, by the way, I think it actually took the Republicans two election cycles to kind of get more to that point that you were making um, and to embrace some of those. Uh, 2012 autopsy results, because if you look back at 2016, Donald Trump didn't do particularly well with minorities. He certainly Mm -hmm. didn't make a pitch to them. It very much was the white working class uh, that he went out. And they remain his base, by the way. And one of the things he did well this time was get even more of them to either convert from the Democratic Party or come out and vote for the first time for him. But I can tell you in all of my times, and I don't know, how everyone else thinks about this, but all of my years covering politics, I have never seen and I've been, never been more impressed by the Republican Party's sustained effort this time to outreach to minority voters in the United States. It wasn't all of the past. I remember the Romney campaign, you know, they do the occasional like. Latinos for Romney one time in the entire campaign you know or they'd have a little group here or there that would do it you know that convention Republicans put on this summer was something to behold the the diversity of faces up there and the people telling their stories but overall I think what you see and what came out of this election is a little bit of a shift and an interesting one uh, where some of those things you talked about, Democrats, the the, the, the longtime uh, defenders of the working class and minorities, those categories are beginning to shift. You know, when I looked at Democrats this year as they were campaigning, they seemed to be much more the, the you know, given how woke everybody was, they seemed to be the party of uh, the Silicon Valley elite um, and other sort of, you know, progressive white white progressive priorities um and you saw that reflected in a lot of minority voters finally saying this year what have you done for us lately and why should we continue to support you when you never do anything for us anymore
1: i mean i John, do think it's, i think it's necessary to say that george w bush did better with hispanics in 2004 yes. Than Trump did in 2020. So the, this notion, I mean, I think there are it's suggestive. Right. There's the the the, the voting uh, patterns are suggestive of an opportunity for Republicans to build on, but that it's only it's only suggestive, and and people are sort of somehow already banking this shift, and it's going to have to intensify and deepen for it to actually be meaningful because those can you... counties, which were impressive, Peter, some of yeah. them have 3,700 people. I'm not kidding. Yeah. The vote total in 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 one of those Rio Grande counties was like 4,200 total votes in the entire, because, you know, it's yes, all yes. sagebrush or something. So so it's, it's worth looking at and saying, you know, maybe there's a really fertile field here to plow, but it wasn't harvested. Douglas Only just kind
0: of plucked at. Douglas, the Tory party, look at this. I designed a question for you. The Tory party used to be the party of the heart and the south, the, the home counties and the south of England, right? That was the base. And now last year under Boris Johnson, the Tory party did very well, broke the so-called red, what, isn't, what was it called, the red wall? Red wall. And it took any a large number of constituencies from labor in the North of England, a really striking development. Mm-hmm. Even as under Donald Trump, the Republican party, at least around the edges, seems to have become something less the party of WASPs and something more the party of working people and something that well, there's at least a potential to appeal to minorities. Are there parallels? Are both there's this strange feeling where somehow the, the United States, our politics and your politics, all the, two, two more than two centuries after we said goodbye to you, somehow or other, it's like two bottles of wine from the same vintage. You can put them in different places in the earth, but they still somehow move together. Can you draw parallel? What's going on?
3: I'd like to try that. Um, <laughs> uh, I there are some parallels. Um, by the way, more stunning statistic than that, my absolute favorite, which just floors some friends in America, won't floor the people present, but is that since 2015, most British uh, Jews vote conservative. Nobody I know in Jordan? America can get over. Yeah. In America, my friends just can't get over that idea.
0: Imagine John, it. you already knew that? Oh, Yeah. John knows everything. Well, oh, I mean, God, God, no, God. but
1: I mean, you know, the 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 leader of the Labour Party was was Britain's foremost anti-Semite. Yes, so right. so. Right. yeah, that, that's uh, so. that definitely
3: that definitely didn't help the Labour Party. <laughs> no, because, <right>. but, but, <laughs> I mean, but, but no, I mean, it actually sorry, predated Corbyn, but it had been a, a shift that had been happening for some time. I just mentioned that because, of course, parties can shift and and um, and all of that. And and in the case of, of Britain, really what happened with the so-called Red Wall seats was that there was a great sort of patriotic endeavour that the Conservative Party put itself at the helm at, and the Labour Party was uh, unsure what attitude it took towards the future of the nation, essentially. Uh so it was, it was, it that was an unusual situation that happened uh, uh, in December last year. I think, by the way, if I may say so for an outsider, one of the things that's simultaneously always um stimulating and shocking about the American political debate is the way in which um communitarian politics dominates everything. I mean, it is simply astonishing to me. We all have the phenomenon in our countries of, you know, in order to win, the uh, the contender has to get, you know, women uh, of, uh, um, uh, you know, dual nationality who drive a particular car on Wednesdays. And uh, obviously, whole rackety careers are made in this sort of prognosis. But actually, as an outsider, and having uh, spent a lot of time in the States running up to the election again, it's just a, re- a reminder of this fact that, America does have this deep underlying problem. You always talk, whatever one's views of identity politics, you always talk about communities and how they vote along ethnic and religious lines, and indeed uh, sexual lines. And uh, and whilst it's the sort of language in which I can appreciate the pollsters might need to speak, and even sort of wonks within the party uh, uh, apparatus, there's something so unhealthy as a nation about you all expecting to talk about politics along racial lines. Well, of course, the Hispanics are doing this and the Blacks are doing this and the Whites are doing that. And you think, well, what about Americans in this whole mix? And and, and there is something to an outside extraordinarily dissonant about this whole manner of talking about the political scene. Well, have you me, got let anything me, oh, that oh, could you on, unite John, you? Let that's me, the real, me... that's question I have to throw back. Could okay, you so find me... something that united you?
0: Let, let me ask one sort of final question on, on, on this political segment here. And then I want to ask John and aim the question at John and Kim and ask them to answer the question. And then we'll come to Douglas and see whether he even approves of the question. <laughs> and, the, and the question runs as follows. John mentioned earlier that the Republican party got back four seats in the House of Representatives that the Democrats had won last time right here in California. I note that two of the seats the Republican Party reclaimed were reclaimed by Republican candidates who were Korean women, both in Orange County, and that the other two were reclaimed by uh, Mexican descent. Parents, recent arrivals from Mexico. They themselves were both born here, but very recent Mexican arrivals. And so, Now, Douglas, you may want to cover your ears because I'm about to engage in sort of inner Republican talk here, but the seldom expressed but deep fear of Republicans is that it's true, that it is a party of white people. And although we love the principles and we remind ourselves that the Republican Party is founded in 1860, 1856, rather, on a cause, the elimination of slavery, when it comes down to it, really it's the people who arrived at Plymouth Rock and everybody who arrived at Ellis Island or crossing the Rio Grande is just going to vote Democratic. And then you see these four people who won seats as Republicans in California and you say, wait a minute, sometime in the next decade, the Republican candidate for governor of California is going to be the child of Vietnamese or African Americans or Koreans or people of recent Mexican descent. And that's thrilling. Yes, no elaboration, Kim Strassel.
2: <laughs> well, I actually uh, agree with Douglas. I think it's uh, depressing at times. She disapproves that. of the question we, itself, all right. I I, 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 I kind of disapprove of the question because I, I don't disapprove of the question, but I, uh, I, I would put it in a different direction. When I was watching that, um, that convention this summer, which I mentioned, and of course I mentioned it in terms of racial terms, and Douglas was probably very disapproving as I did talking about the outrage. Now Douglas is now
0: in our heads. This is the problem with what's going on. He's here. in Go my ahead.
2: head. He's in my head. I do have a. I have a quick point on that though. But um, one of the things that, that struck me is not the colors of the faces or or, or the backgrounds or the history, but the stories that people were telling and how they resonated out there in the country, which I think is a much better story about this transformation you see in conservative politics and uh, you had people, up there, all small business owners talking about the struggles that they had had during COVID and lockdowns um, and how important it had been to them that they got tax cuts on that. The regulatory burden had been lifted from them. You had people from all over the world talking about, their history and their desire to escape oppression, escape socialism, um, and their worry about a, re, you know, a return to that in the United States under some of the policies that were being promoted by Democrats. Um, talk, a lot of people talking about opportunity, you know, whether it be in school choice or whether it be in these new opportunity zones in downtown urban areas that had been People talking about safety, law and order, the necessity of the police. These are the sort of things that, that's what bound together everyone on the stage. And they completely, as Douglas is saying, transcend anyone's, I mean, I think that's why, because in the in the end, if you were a Hispanic American small business owner, you face the exact same challenges as the white small business owner. And so it was the ideas that were persuasive on the stage more so than the color of the skin. Um, one thing I did have wanted to ask, I, goes, I lived in England for a while and I always found it refreshing that you guys don't have the same kind of racial discussions and gender discussions that we do. I did notice however was always astonished by the fact that those seem to be replaced by class discussions yes. which is not something that is something that we have in, your pipe sure in the United oh. States. Yeah, just just oh. I want to throw that out there.
0: <laughs> John.
1: So um uh, I'm I'm a member of a minority group like I'm a Jew, 2% of the public is is Jewish. Um when Douglas when you say that you know it's depressing in America because we're not talking about all Americans but we're breaking people mm-hmm. down the oddity of the entire discussion that Peter started raising about the emerging democratic majority which is that the uh, that uh, white people are shrinking as a as a number and therefore there's an inevitable going to be an inevitable democratic majority the problem with this is that white people are America, which is to say when, you know, 20 years ago, 84% of people in the United States were classified as white. Now it's 74% or 72%, depending on, we'll see what the next census says. That's an overwhelming majority of people. Like that is not, we're not a heterogeneous country because within whiteness there, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, Irish and Italian Americans did not feel as though they had a lot of commonality with each other. Uh, and they were ethnically divided. Now we look at them and we say they're all, we're all, they're all white uh, and the Jews are white, which would have been a great, uh, mystery to my grandfather, the milkman, that he was as white as Rockefeller. Uh, but nonetheless, there we are. And, and this, there, there is this idea somehow that what's American is, um, is racial division. And um, it's not, you know, uh, when Donald Trump took a, Donald Trump rather brilliantly decided that he was going to go after this group, that we were told, particularly the white working class, this was not a fertile field to get back to the plowing, (laughs) Analogy: This is not a fertile field because they don't vote. They'd stop voting or they don't vote. They vote in low numbers. And you, don't, you need more educated people who turn out in wildly larger numbers. And the idea was maybe if somebody said, I like you, I like you, I like you, I like you, and I don't like those people and they're ruining this country with what they're doing, maybe they would turn out in exactly the right numbers in exactly the right places. And that's exactly what happened in Ohio in Michigan, in Wisconsin, and in Pennsylvania, right? That these never voters, which is you're not supposed to structure a, a political campaign that way. And on the other hand, why people didn't try it before, it's because there is an American, there's an orthodoxy or an American religion that says that we are a melting pot and that you were supposed to get elected by a melting pot of voters and that's legitimizing. And if you were say, whereas, so that Barack Obama, the fact that Barack Obama got 97, 98, 99% of the black vote in 2008, where you would say, dude, that's kind of weird. You know, that's, those are like Stalin. Those are like Russian numbers. But that's like, this is amazing. That's amazing because he got all that and then he got white people and then he got 54% of the vote or 50. Isn't that astonishing, right? But the simple fact of the matter is that a majoritarian voting, majoritarian election strategy that says, you know what I'm going to try to do? I'm going to try to get as many votes from the group that makes up 72 to 74% of the population. um, That's like rational. That's a sane strategy, the insane strategy, actually, and this is where the magic, the sort of the, um, you know, the, the hocus pocus of consultants come in. It's like, no, no, I'll tell you what, we can shave off this and we can pull that. We'll do that. We'll send a message over here and we'll do a little bit over there or something like that in a national election. And I know these aren't really national elections. They're 50 state elections, but in a, when you're trying to make a national appeal, you should be including the Democrats, what they should be going for is the 72 to 74 percent of the population like that's where that's where the fight is going to be? Now, you can also say if that's really divided and closely divided, then you got to pluck off little bits of these other groups of the other 25, 26, 27 percent in order to get your majority, Douglas. Do you see, you know, you see,
0: you see how sensitive we are to the suggestion that you made that we think too much about identity politics. Would you like to defend Britain against the charge of class, by the way, uh, class politics?
3: I'll, I'll half defend my country. Um, y- yes, uh, it, it was the distinguished British no- novelist Zadie Smith who once observed that uh, race is uh, in America what class is in Britain. It's the conversation underneath every conversation. Mm. Uh, mm. I think that's, I think that's certainly more of the case in the past than it is today in 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 British. Politics. A great friend of mine who used to cover elections in the you know, 60s and so on in the UK used to say you could see it in very class terms then. You know, you watched a, a Conservative Party conference and you could see the upper classes using the middle classes to do things to the working classes they didn't dare to do themselves. And the Labour Party conference consisted of the intelligentsia upper class being used by the lower class to do to the middle class things they wouldn't dare. (laughs) Um, And you could go on and on. Now, I think that was the case then to some extent. I think that has broken down in Britain now, uh, if we're not a classless society, a, a, uh, a a much less class obsessed society um so it's probably not a useful way by the way just to, to to see the whole prism of british politics now but one thing i would say is that, that that struck me is very important in the u.s in the time i was there and, and particularly at trump rallies i noticed I uh, attended at various places including one where the president spoke in, in florida one thing that struck me was uh, um, you know to the extent that he managed to reach across uh, across parties it struck me that one of the things he'd done was to realize the necessity of of responding to a specific left-wing narrative with equal force. That is, that the left in our age is, is now, as it, perhaps it has been always, uh, um, very focused on resentment. And resentment is, of course, an extraordinarily powerful human instinct. and It can be whipped up with enormous ease. Um, there, there are sort of conservative responses to it that say things like, no, 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 um, inequality isn't quite as bad as you say because of this percentile factor in this demographic group. And that is to sort of to lose the argument. Donald Trump, it seemed to me through the COVID, through the lockdown and in the, in the years before, seemed to me to have realized this very important thing, which is that the only true antidote to resentment is aspiration. It's mm. the only one that plays it at equal depth uh, and, uh, and with equal appeal. And he did seem to be utilizing that. It seemed to be enormously popular across all sorts of groups. And you could see it in just the lockdown discussion. I mean, medical experts obviously had their own things to say about it. But the whole thing of just somebody saying, we need to get going, we want to boom, we want to get open again, was a different drive and one that did appeal across different groups, it seemed to me.
0: From Donald J. Trump to Joseph Biden Jr.,
3: that What well, we're happen. saying... More people signed up. These are up. from your own
0: more, actuaries. More more, more more, people signed mm-hmm. up for Medicare Advantage after what, the change. What they're no, saying... Nobody is... Mr. Vice President, down. I know... No, no this Mr. Vice President, President this is little... I know you're under a lot of duress to make up for the ground. <laughs> <last> round.
2: <laughs> the way Trump... The way China will respond is when we gather the rest of the world that, in fact, envision and free and in open trade and making sure that we're in a position that the world
0: uh, that, that we deal with who the right way at 78 years old joe biden when he's inaugurated on Jan- january 20th will be older on taking office than ronald reagan was when he left office question was it useless needlessly provocative was it underhand to play those clips just now Kim Strassel or is it fair to note that what everybody sees which is that Joe Biden has lost a, a step or two are we allowed to just to comment on that as the man prepares to take office and what i'm getting at here is questions of journalism as as much as of Joe Biden
2: yeah right exactly well i am a firm believer that everyone should always be allowed to talk about the obvious you know, and it is inescapable, inescapable. All you have to do, and I think that that was brilliant, that those clips, to go back and compare Joe Biden from eight years ago and compare Joe Biden to today. And there's just no question, he's lost a step. And by the way, no failure in that either, because when you're 78, I hope I can run around and, and have the vigor to, to run a presidential campaign when I was 78 years old. That alone is a tough thing to do. But there can be no question that there's an issue there, and I can tell you that in any other election cycle, if it had not been Donald J. Trump running for re-election, the press would have been all over this, um, and they would have demanded more information about his uh, medical records and whether or not he'd been tested for certain things, and they would have raised that question. Um, and and now we've got what we've got, and you know I think it's remarkable that even Democrats openly talk about the likelihood that Joe Biden will only make it one term, or might not even make it one term. Um, I think that's kind of a stunning situation also that America chose to vote for that. Now, look, Donald Trump's not that much younger, and if he were to run again, he'd be closer to the same age. Um, but the but the difference, but it was also quite notable, the difference in vigor and sort of mental acuity, whether or not you like Donald Trump or don't, but that was pretty profound in this in this race.
0: So what does it mean, John, that we are about to inaugurate a president, excuse me, you made the, here, I'll bring it back to the book that I mentioned, your 1993 book, Hell of a Ride. And one of the brilliant passages in Hell of a Ride, which was about the one-term administration of George H.W. Bush. I really thought this was a brilliant passage. You contrasted the decision-making process in the Reagan White House, in which you and I both served, with the decision-making process in the George H.W. Bush White House. And in the Reagan White House, decisions tended to get made because the whole bureaucracy and certainly the senior staff knew in the first place where the president stood on all important decisions. So there were a lot of things that never reached his desk in the first place. Everybody already knew what the answer would be. And in the administration of George H.W. Bush, decision-making was endless because nobody knew where the president stood. There would be, stood, there would be bureaucratic fights. Then it would go up to the senior staff. Should we take it to the president? Should we then and to take it to the president? And he'd flip it back out for it. It went on endlessly. George H.W. Bush was plenty mentally acute, but nobody knew quite where he stood. And now, so are we heading into something like this where we have the president, everybody knows, although only Kim Strassel will say it out loud, that he's just not quite all there in the way that he was in recent years. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for simple decision-making in the White House?
1: Joe Biden was elected because he is not Donald Trump. Right. That's it. That's it. So you wanna know what the presidency is gonna be like? I don't know. Nobody knows. And what's more, nobody who voted for him really cares. What the presidency is going to be like. What they know is, it is he's not going to tweet. With him. He's not going to tweet, or he'll how he'll tweet in an anodyne manner. Um, you know, he's appointing a bunch of his friends. Uh, he'll be a totally uh, paradigmatic liberal. Um, you know, he got through the primary by not being Trump and not being the Democratic left. He had all these people to his left and all he did was stand there and say, I'm not them. I'm not going for, I don't want single payer healthcare. Uh, you know, I'm not Bernie Sanders. I'm not Joaquin Castro. I'm not any of these people. I'm me. I'm old. I'm tired. I don't have a lot of energy. I'm not going to give you spilkiss and trouble when I become president. Just make me president and I'll be there and you'll, did the, the, the madness will end. That's all we know. And, and I think the American public was totally aware. I mean, after all, he started a reasonable decision to make. In 2019, there were, I don't know how many Democratic debates. It was very nerve wracking to watch them because you kept watching them waiting for him to basically blow himself up on the launch pad by saying something totally gaga. He didn't do it. He didn't do it in the two debates with, with Trump. He, you know, he pulled himself to whatever it was, however it worked, he made it, and now he's not Trump. And that's all there is, and he needed one term. Basically, it's like, I'm here to restore the solar country, meaning just get this guy out. Get him out. That's, and you know what? That's all I'm asking. I'm going to be 211 years old in 2024. Maybe you'll make Kamala Harris president. Maybe you'll pick a Republican. Whatever. Just get this guy out. That's what he was. And now if the, you know, the Republicans are basically saying, A, I don't know if you got him out. I don't actually know if you got him out, which I don't agree with. But B, you know what? Just to go like this to you, we're going to nominate him again in 2024. You think, you think you're think you going to get away from him that easily? Maybe you're not going to get away from him that easily. Douglas? You know,
2: just to underscore yes, this. Yes, Kim. Can mm-hmm. I, under? I mean, and I'll ask sure. all of you this question, but to underscore how... Little we know about Joe Biden's intentions. Can any of you ever name a, a, a circumstance, any election in any time, any history, any primary in which the winner turned around to the loser and said, "Here, help me decide what I'm going to believe in." You know, I mean, the, these these joint task force between as, Biden as Joe and, Biden did and, to Bernie Sanders. Sanders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, normally when you lose, it's because your party said we don't want that. And instead, Biden turns around and goes, just help me figure out what I'm supposed to run on here and what we all believe. And you see this in his nominations, too. They're all kind of over the board. And it's all about who's yelling the loudest at the moment about who should get a position and from what you know category. And it's a, a, and then throw in there the fact we don't know the results from the Georgia election, because that's going to influence what this presidency looks like, too.
0: Douglas, what does Europe want but excuse me, that's the old fashioned way of putting the question. What do Britain and Europe want from Joe Biden? Or are they in the Podhoritz camp of it's enough for now, for months to come, it's enough that he's not Trump?
3: Yeah, I mean, Europeans and indeed to some extent the British are never that fond of Republican presidents. It's a sad but, but noticeable fact. Uh, as long as you're a Democrat, you could get elected across Europe. Mm. Um, uh, in, in the presidency. And uh, I mean, lots of things that happened, like you know, the, the portrayal of Trump as anti-NATO whilst actually getting people to pay up and saying exactly the same things, albeit more forcefully than every previous president was sort of just wildly misconstrued. But then George uh, W. Bush was wildly misrepresented across Europe as well. I think it's it, it's the norm. Uh, I, to, to my mind, by the way, there was, a, there was a big mistake made by the Trump team in, in the way in which they talked up the mental degeneration of Joe Biden. By the first debate, an ability to tie his own shoes and walk onto the stage without dribbling on them was seen as a victory. Uh, Was seen as obvious, (laughs) obvious contention for contender for the presidency. Um, As a result, uh, people didn't linger on the on the more obvious questions, which were what exactly in his sixth decade in politics Joe Biden can achieve that he hasn't in the half century before, Um, and, and then the much bigger question i think that is under that which is not just how america has got this president but how it's got this vice president who's very likely to become president during the next four years um we we have somebody selected for the vice presidency selected along again racial and chromosomal lines and i i just think all of this is very bad late empire stuff it's extremely bad late empire behavior, when you just don't know, like, you know, you're, you're, China's the only country in the world whose economy comes out of 2020 growing. What is Kamala Harris going to do about that? Doesn't seem to interest anyone. As long as you've got the right uh, chromosomes, America doesn't much care. Listen, China, yeah.
0: China, hold on, John. I just, yeah. okay. I, I, there are two big yeah. topics I still, okay. I just okay. have to get to because I get the three of you together once. Okay. And China is one of them. Lee Kuan Yew, dead now these many years, but still, this is Lee Kuan Yew, the late dictator of Singapore, who did it, ran Singapore the way he wanted to run it. There was no discussion; only the most superficial, steaming, uh, the, only the most superficial democracy in Singapore. And yet, the economy grew, and people immigrated to Singapore from all over Asia. Lee Kuan Yew, quote. Rwanda or Bangladesh or Cambodia or the Philippines, they've got democracy, but have you got civilized have you got a civilized life to lead? People don't want the right to write an editorial as they please. People want economic development. And so the question is, China, which has lifted half a billion people out of poverty, and has to be granted some kind of legitimacy for having done so. During the old Cold War, certainly during the final phase of the Cold War, it, it, communism had tr- tremendous ideological appeal, but by the end of the Cold War, nobody wanted to live like Russians. Hmm. Is the Chinese model, if you're sitting in Bolivia or Ghana, do you say, China is is what we want to be. China is the wave of the future. Do we have a new model arising in China that makes democracy look like yesterday's thing, John?
2: Well, if
1: if that were the case, that is just the authoritarian temptation at all times, at all places uh, over the course of history, which is this uh, idea that uh that uh, that an enlightened uh despot despotic regime that can order reality as it wishes if it uses sane principles of uh, of of judgment and nobody is really allowed uh, much leeway to challenge what the regime is doing uh, everybody can then profit the rising tide will lift all boats and all of that and free thought, free practice of religion, free, a lot of things. That's just not as important as, you know, as the sucker in your belly and your, and, and, and your, your general, uh, your country being strong and, 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 and all of that. Now the Chinese story is, is not duplicable by Bolivia because it's not China. It doesn't have China's, you know, millennia old, civilization, doesn't have uh, uh, China's people, and it doesn't have the the simple fact that uh, China exploded outward in part because it had so drastically suppressed the energies and animal spirits of its population that as it slowly liberated them from its jackboot, they exploded outward. Now, we are now four decades from the moment at which those animal spirits were unleashed. And the Chinese government uh, at the present moment deserves very little credit for what has gone on in the, you know, in these two generations. Like it is now, talk about sort of late empire, not that it's really, you know, uh, Xi and those, they, they were not the people who did all this experimentation. They are the ones who are going, ooh, maybe there's a little too much experimentation going on here. We better start cracking down before they want too much. And I don't know whether that model is is suggestive of anything to anybody else because how can you be China Without being China, China itself isn't isn't. Exp- China is exporting bribery through the Silk Road system, but it is not exporting ideas. It's not exporting. Mm. You know, it's not. It's, it, there's no presentation. It's stealing them, agenda, yes. right?
2: Douglas,
0: Douglas, you're nodding. You're nodding.
3: Yes, yes. No, I mean, I mean, uh, what Li Yu says uh, may be the case if people have never experienced the freedoms that he's deprecating there. In other words, you, you might only not miss the opportunity to write the newspaper editorial if you'd ever had the opportunity to do so in your society. If the memory is, is totally defunct, multi-generational defunct, then then the, yes, what Lee Han-Yi says has some uh, credit to it. But this, the glaring example staring at so should be staring at us all as a moral horror of this year is, is what's happened with the people it's of Hong Kong. Kong mm. Where exactly, I think, people who did know uh, the freedoms that China is trying to expunge people who do remember those rights and don't want to give them up, but who have found very little receptivity in the international community to try to do anything about them, Because as I hear in capitals across the West, people say, but it's China. What are you going to do? Uh, By the way, you mentioned I was just in Central Europe recently uh, after coming back from America. The joke in Central and Eastern Europe, and I've heard it from from people in Russia as well, since the American election has been that America spent so much time exporting democracy in recent years it forgot to hold any of it at home. This is a very. The Poles and
0: Hungarians are telling that joke.
3: Yeah, everyone's telling it. It's a very common joke that these days. And I can. It's an ugly, ugly joke, and it's an ugly opportunity. It's an ugly joke to, for America to even offer the world as being able to, able to tell.
2: I it don't Should see not that, be guess, funny. Right.
3: It shouldn't be funny. There shouldn't be mm. anything in it. It should be mm. impossible to recognize. But mm. but yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, internationally, this is this is a big problem at the moment. All of these all these wretched uh, despotisms are going to be able to point to America and say, well, what's so good about you at the moment? And America has to be able to say what it is that's good. Otherwise we're all in a mess. You and I- Can I ask uh,
0: uh, back to China just briefly, uh, if I may, because I want, well, just because I want to hear what you have to say about this, Kim. From the Reagan years, again, John and I can remember, we actually can remember those years. The American position was to be hopeful and welcoming toward China, right? And I can remember my late colleague here at the Hoover Institution, Harry Rowan, who was a very wise man, looked at what happened in South Korea. First, they got rich and then they became democratic and looked at what happened in Taiwan. And Harry wrote a piece, which I'm sure he would regret now. He's spinning in his own, in his grave, but still he wrote a piece saying that following this pattern, China would become a democracy around the year 2015. Totally mistaken. Donald Trump You could argue whether tariffs were the right way to go whether he understood quite what he was doing but donald trump donald trump fingered china as an adversary does that now represent a bipartisan under what 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 will the biden administration do about china if anything
2: so this point you just made i've been dying to say this for the last five or six uh, minutes is just this model you suggested you know is are people around the world looking at china and thinking it's a model if they are it's in part because america for too long um i i believe and other western countries just simply accepted this notion that was also spun by china that it was possible to be both economically liberated and a communist country and be a good world participant mm. and a, an honorable world actor, and that it would all just work out fine. And because it was easier for the United States uh to do that, and because we were hopeful of that notion, uh, we just kind of floated along with that, even as evidence mounted and mounted, uh, whether it was it's the Uyghur treatment in China, whether it was the Absolutely obvious fact that they were stealing intellectual property from Western countries, right and left. Um, You know, uh, it's uh, labor standards, whatever it may be, that this was not turning out the way that they said it was going to. And we just closed our eyes to it. And yes, Donald Trump. I think that a couple of things have happened. He did finger them as an adversary, but they've also now, because of the growing strain on China internally on their leadership, they have begun to have to show their colors in very important ways and their actions in Hong Kong. Kong. uh, Now, obviously, uh, what's been going on in terms of their role with handling the virus in the beginning? Um, uh, but that, as a result, has really exposed them. Um, and the tariffs issue, obviously, and bad practices. No one can deny simply the bad practices. Qu- put a, put aside your questions on sort of trade with China, trade deficits. The bad practices are terrible. Yeah. Um, uh, intellectual property theft is just rife. All kinds of bad actions. So um, and the result you saw it in the election was Joe Biden trying to get to the right of Donald Trump on China. Um, and so I do think we come into this year with an odd bipartisan agreement that China is increasingly the biggest threat out there. and and you see that playing into things now like uh, Biden's defense secretary um, nominee, Austin. Um, and a lot of people pointing out that he doesn't seem to be the right guy for the job because he's a Middle East land war guy. And right now our issue is the Pacific.
0: Um, every one of these questions we could do about three hours on. And with the three of you, I'd love to do three hours on them. Um, the pandemic. Alex Berenson. This is a tweet that Alex Berenson put up yesterday. Uh, uh, you all know who Alex Berenson is, yes? Alex Berenson a skeptic. is- skeptic.
1: Yeah. Right, former Democratic former New
0: skeptic. York Times and, and COVID skeptic. I don't mean to be pessimistic, he writes, but I fear 2021 is going to be ugly, not because of COVID, but everything around it. The gap between what governments are doing and trying, masks and vaccine mandates and lockdowns and closed schools, the gap between that and what the public will take is about to explode. Douglas,
3: well i i'm sure that like others i have this awful feeling that the the relative quiet is the quiet that you get on the beach i'm told just before the tsunami lands um there's um an inhaling of breath in my own country i i think it exists elsewhere because of this because we come into out of 2020 with this massive increase in public borrowing and a massive fall off in gdp and it's the same it's the same for all of us other than china as i mentioned earlier and um, I, th- I think I'm not an economist, but you don't need to be to be worried by by this extraordinary situation we now find ourselves in. How do the global economies get out of this? I'm not sure I know, I hope somebody does. Um, do we have Bretton Woods too? World leaders have to have some kind of discussion about the nature of public debt at this point. And uh, I don't know what the answer is, but. But I have this awful, as I say, awful feeling of before the storm.
0: What about also, so economic, yes. What about the relationship of the governors to the governed? Uh, Boris, the government in your country just moved a new, quite complicated semi-lockdown through the House of Commons. Hmm. And as I recall, it was something like 60 members of the Tory party voted against its own government. Yes. Which is a which is a shocking statistic, a, re, a rebellion of oh. that. So, the Tory government moved this measure because on well because labor abstain, and in any event, people are sick of being locked down yes. and being told what they're allowed to say and what they're not allowed and, to say. And I'm not, I'm, not,
3: I'm not sure it's just to do with being sick of lockdown. I mean, anyone could get sick of lockdown, but if we were in the middle of the bubonic plague, we'd, we'd be very keen on it continuing. Yes, yes. Uh, and we're not. And it's the complexity of the, the reality of the virus as we know it now, as opposed to where we were in March. That's the deep problem. You know, I, 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 I'd like to think of these problems in sort of Aristotelian terms, and say, look, the, there were competing virtues going on here. And in the year of COVID, the competing virtues are clearly um, the public health and uh, the economy, and the public health takes absolute precedence in March and April of this year. By May, some people are getting nervous, uh, Republicans in the US, some conservatives in the UK, and elsewhere, they're saying, you know, unless, unless we have an economy, we don't have the health service that we have here, for instance, unless, unless we have people able to work, the rest of it's not gonna, not going to fly. So the economy starts to get, by perhaps the summer of this year, a sort of level pegging uh, with the public health. And then at some point in all our countries, I think in the last few months, it's overtaken it. Um, but but uh, governments government's in, in a quandary on this. Uh, you can, by the way, the colleague of mine, who I'm often in disagreement with, but a colleague of mine, a spectator in London called Matthew Paris, made an interesting observation recently that his observation from his time in politics was that people never say that what they did was a mistake. But you can tell they think it when they say, I don't think we should do that a second time. <laughs> and very, very few people said, lockdown one is a total error I wish we hadn't done it we've crashed our economies a lot of people were saying I think lockdown two won't be uh, worth doing or lockdown three And um, but we do get this we, there is so much complexity in it because one thing I've also noticed this year is that the general public's we know that they lie to the pollsters when they're asked whether or not they, for instance, approve of Donald Trump for the presidency. We forget that they lie to the pollsters in other regards as well. And all of our governments, perhaps this is slightly less true in America than in in Europe and in Britain, but the publics tell the pollsters that they approve of lockdowns, curfews, and more. The politicians react to what they believe the publics want But to a great extent, the publics are simply telling the pollsters what they think they should tell the pollsters in order to be good people. No, I don't want to kill grandma. So I'll say that we should have a curfew.
1: That is a very, very important (laughs) point. I've been making that point for months that we that there is a social desirability bias in favor of saying that you were for masking and you were for lockdown and you were for this because uh, because to say otherwise is to be a recklessly irresponsible. Now, have, I think that there is a much larger thing to look forward to, and I this is not prescriptive, it's simply, uh, it's predictive, which is that um, uh, this is going to be the dominating issue of the next decade in political terms, but people don't understand this yet, which is to say that the behavior of these politicians who say you 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 know you must not go visit your grandmother, but then go visit their grandmother, for mm-hmm. example, or uh, lockdown policies that seem not to really affect the very well-to-do, all of that, uh, because people in the thinking professions find it much easier to live in a work-at-home situation than people who work with their hands, who obviously can't do so, you can't be a garage mechanic in your house. You can't be, uh, you know, do lawn work in your house. You can't, you can't run a restaurant in your house. Um, and all of these things are very important. And uh, there is a, an alliance between the political class and the media class to hide the kinds of uh, responses that ordinary people are gonna have to this bifurcated world. And 2024, 2022, 2026, there are going to be expressions of political rage about some of that, including unfair expressions where people are going to blame politicians for things that they really were just struggling to get right about how to make sure that hundreds of thousands or millions of people don't die. But nonetheless, the economy's tanked. um, And ordinary political solutions, which people also haven't, uh, which I think, Douglas is referring to, like, we're not going to be able to Keynesian buy our way out of this. We're already at $20 trillion of national debt. There isn't going to be any money. Joe Biden isn't going to be able to turn around and create giant new government programs because all the bills are going to start coming due. Like, you know, and we have the bills that we know are coming due anyway on Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security in the next 15 years. And um, there is going to be a war for public resources, and there is going to be a lot of rage in the body politic, and politicians are gonna harness it in weird ways that we don't expect. My view, not to filibuster here, but my view is that Donald Trump is the, was the response, the political response to the financial meltdown of 2008, which could not be litigated in the 2008 election because it happened too close to the election. And because of the oddity of the fact that Mitt Romney, a hedge fund billionaire or close to billionaire, was the nominee in 2012, it could not be properly litigated in 2012 because there was a kind of weird conspiracy between Romney and Obama not to talk about the financial meltdowns cost and 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 the and the way politicians were responsible for deepening some of the troubles. And Trump was the response. Trump was you all stink. Everybody, Kim. Republicans stink, Democrats stink, Washington stinks. I'm the one, the only one who's willing to say Iraq stunk, this stunk, everything stinks. Kim is the election.
0: Kim, John and Douglas are worried about nothing. The vaccine is coming. Will This is all going to be over by spring. No lingering, yes, 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 debt, but they'll print enough money. They'll do it slowly. Jerome Powell, the Fed, we'll, we'll get through it. The vaccine is coming. It's not winter is coming. Spring is coming, Kim.
2: Well, yes, amazing. Just in the last week, too. Winter was coming, winter was coming, winter was coming, and now we're just skipping winter and we're going straight to spring. And it's all about Joe Biden. But... No, look, there's two reasons why that's wrong. One is what John's talking about, except for I think with one slight change I would make, that rage isn't coming, that rage is here now. Um, and to to kind of wind it back to Alex Berenson, the reason he could make that prediction is because Alex is talking to real people, unlike all of those journalists who are holed up with their job security in their apartment in New York, getting their deliveries from Dean and DeLuca. Okay, so he's talking to people. Well, who Dean, are about and to
1: lose. Dean and Deluca closed. Dean Deluca closed because of the it? pandemic. But anyway, well, see, Zabar's is still nah, nah, you're now. You're, now you're talking about rage
2: Zaybars. from right. Zabar's. Okay, yeah, fine. Okay. All right. See, I'm not in New York. I know. I, you're I not. talk to these people too. I talk to these people too. And the and the thing is, is You know, Americans were willing to tolerate this back in the spring because no one understood what was going on and there was real fear. Mm. We now have so much information we did not have before, and we know that this is a disease that's terrible for people who are above a certain age. But that you cannot justify these widespread lockdowns for the majority of Americans. And if you are a small business owner, it's one thing, you know, to go back to what Douglas said about knowing that you failed, it's one thing to go into business as an entrepreneur and know you failed. It's another to know that you are failing because the government has a- eliminated your ability to feed your family. And yes. that rage is already happening and, and that is already out there. I, um yes. you know and yeah can, oh, I, can yes. I add, add one, one
3: a shorthand version of my own of this which is uh, i used to say in the last few years that uh i was speaking to students or college campuses or that sort of thing i always used to say you know you're the luckiest generation in human history you've had it better than anyone before you and uh quit whining basically uh i've become aware in 2020 this line doesn't run anymore uh, I was speaking to some Spanish friends the other day, and I simply, you know, they've been locked up in Madrid mostly. The and they, they were just like, mm. if you're young now, I mean, if you had 10 years of crisis in the Mediterranean, obviously, and maybe Mediterranean econ- uh, economy is always going to be in some kind of crisis. Uh, but, uh, you know, you've, you've had 12 years since the Eurozone crisis, the crash. Actually, you've, the inequality debate, to the left started off rather badly, hasn't been picked up very well by the right. And we've now had this year when it's just metastasized, whereas as both John and Kim have said, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you live in a relatively nice house, you've got a garden, 2020 has been kind of relaxing. You know, you didn't have to bother with the commute anymore. And if you love your family, which of course not everybody does, it was a pleasure to be with them. It was a pleasure to be at home. Uh, what about all the, all the young people who were just getting on the job market, just trying, or have been persuaded to get into debt and go to university and then aren't allowed to mingle with anyone when they go to university and they're locked right. in their halls of residence? What if they're climbing up? the walls of a small rental apartment outside new york that's not living the dream and it isn't what they were promised and the, and and here we get onto the, the real thing of political uh, political uh, unhappiness is that i can't remember who it was it who said it but you know the, the the real cause of unhappiness isn't isn't actually what you get measurable by other people it's what you get compared to what you thought you were going to get yes 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 right
2: I'm, I'm just, stop, I am just uh, want to throw in one last thing though, about why this is not going to end, just to, to, to follow up. The other reason this is not going to end is because what 2020 did is expose and give all kinds of uh, public officials and governors in particular on the left. It allowed them to unleash their petty tyrant. And now that they have that uh, bit in their mouth, uh, you know, I'm really fearful about what any the word public health will mean in future Mm. to any politician that wants to use it as an excuse to change the rules
3: by the way can i just say did did, did other people agree with me how glorious it was at the beginning of all of this when uh certainly people just stepped away from referring to public safety well there was, mm. there, in my own country there was actually mm. there was actually a body that set itself up at some point some said so we need a basically we need a committee on the public safety.
0: <laughs> Stanford <laughs> <Yeah>. University's first <laughs> impulse, the first the first name they gave, they actually used the name Committee on Public Committee of Public Safety or Committee for Public. Unbelievable. All right. Yeah. Listen, so I've got a couple of closing questions here. Douglas has set up, Douglas has set it up by talking about late empire. And of course, what is striking about the, the, I beg your pardon, late Republic, what's striking about the last century or so of Rome is that there's one unprecedented event after another. Sulla marches on the city, Caesar acquires the loyalty of the army, and you just get the feeling that you can't identify one villain although you could take the de- caesar deserved to be stabbed or but it's hard to identify one villain but you do just get the feeling of a system under stress where the senate just doesn't know what to do anymore and the relationships between the senate and the the people begin to change and the whole thing is fatigued and overwhelmed all right bear that in mind and then we look at our own this is a longish setup but I hope you'll think it's worth it. 2 years in our own recent history. In 1979, Soviets are expanding. They've got a they their navy is bigger than ours. The western economies are stagnant. And 10 years later in 1989, out of nowhere, who would have expected Margaret Thatcher is elected in 1979, Reagan announces for office this strange previously unknown poll visits Poland, John Paul II, and one decade later, the Berlin Wall falls. And there is a sense of one decade of astonishing and really unpredictable, or at least unpredicted renewal. And this is the West at work. Somehow the principles of democracy and liberty are not only permanently valid, but permanently open to renewal. Are you in any way hopeful that we might be in for a good decade? John? I'm always
1: hopeful. Uh, I, I don't see any reason not to be hopeful, although I don't think you can look at the political condition of the United States right now and say that there's much reason to hope that that is where... Our renewal is going to come from. It is it is going to come elsewhere. It is going to come from Elon Musk building a ship that takes us to Mars. It's going to come from um, uh a new a renewed sense of the possibilities of innovation that are brought about by this amazing Operation Warp Speed vaccine production, or something like that. But I think. In this sense, one could say that we are very close to being where the United States was at the tail end of the 19th century with a completely dysfunctional political life that was in the end unimportant historically, except for the, slow, except for the end of reconstruction and the sort of the, the, the sclerotic slowdown of, of, of civil rights change that had to take 75 years that it shouldn't have taken. Um, because so much else was happening, in the, the modernization of the economy, this explosion of, of, of American economic growth, and the sense of America becoming the, the most important country country on earth. Now, I don't, we're not doesn't feel. J.P. Like
0: Morgan that. and J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller mattered more than Grover Cleveland,
1: right? Or, or yeah, Thomas Edison or Henry Ford or, all, or right. Alexander Graham Bell. You know, I mean, that's right. So, if you look back. Chester Allen Arthur and Grover Cleveland didn't really matter very much. So I'm hopeful, but I am very not hopeful about American politics in part for what Kim was talking about. I mean, uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, uh, sound, you know sounds like the dictator in the Woody Allen movie Bananas. You know, it's sort of, he, he wins the election then he starts saying the national language will be Swedish and you should all wear your underwear on the outside. Underwear will be worn on the outside. Because had, suddenly having emergency powers, he gets to be the goon that he has always wanted to be and that he always, anybody who watched him always thought that he was, but that he was restrained by the normal rules of political restraint that were simply thrown out. And that's where I think the the one hopeful thing would be this Crazy political response to to the lockdowns that I still think is coming, but you know it could also be bad. I mean, I don't. It could go in any way. We don't know what way it goes.
0: Kim, renewal.
2: So I'm always hopeful. I'm more hopeful than than John overall. <laughs> um, not to just to narrow it in a little bit, um, and instead of talking about the, the, the feelings out in the country and. Uh, et cetera, and, and all this agonized feeling. Um, you you. One of the first questions you opened with was what would be the one word phrase for Donald Trump in history? And, and we also talked about what his legacy might be. And I think, cause you hear some of his advisors now making this argument to him and it could play into whether or not he recedes from politics or not. But the line I would give would be the great disruptor, okay? He came in, as people were talking about, John uh, mentioned earlier, everyone was like, uh, you know, we, we hate the system, we're angry at you, you're not serving us, uh, think about this, We we had the American public giving the House to Nancy Pelosi in a huge majority and then being disappointed in giving it you know, back to the Republicans and then taking it back again because they keep searching for someone that's going to fix these problems that they see growing in society and the political class is failing them. And they thought, why not give Donald Trump a try? And he has broken a lot of established norms. I don't think that he's the one or that tenure is the one that leads to renewal but I think it potentially lays the groundwork. He exposed a lot of rot that was out there in society. And, and I'm not sure Joe Biden was the perfect person to replace him because Joe Biden has no interest in dealing with that rot. But by exposing it, you get a public that is more focused on it. And I wonder what kind of politician we get down the road that next is very popular and if it's one who, who promises to deal with some of these fundamental issues. Douglas.
3: You know the interesting thing um, about plagues in history is is what they do when they run through the society. Um, the, the Justinian plague, plagues, plagues that ripped through Babylon. Wh- what they what they tend to have in common is that they they sow enormous doubt and expose existing fears. And I think that 2020, the historians will say that America, the existing fear that that this plague semi-plague, demi-plague unleashed was the BLM movement, was the, are we actually this racist society where you can kill black people with impunity? Many people around the world believe this year that America is that. I, I don't agree that it is. But there seemed to be this extraordinary, overwhelming, very deep layer level of fear about this. Are we what they say we are? That was the great doubt that seemed to rip through America in the wake of the plague that sowed such disorientation. But then... You get to the real question underlying this, and this comes always to the question of renewal, which is, to to consider it in sort of Hegelian terms, is is, is it an exhausted force or not? What you were describing, uh, uh, Peter, about 1979 is because three people came along who knew that the West was not an exhausted force, who knew that democracy wasn't an exhausted force, that anti-totalitarianism wasn't an exhausted force. They knew it, and they proved it. Now, the, the problem f- for us, it seems to be, is the number of people who seem to think that the West itself is an exhausted force. I don't agree with that, but it, but it could be. I mean, uh, to some extent, one's just sort of living in hope on some of these things. Do you think it is or isn't? It comes down to do you want it to be or not? And a lot of people want it to be an exhausted force, and a lot of people, of course, understandably don't want it to be. But I do think that the thing that the history books will write about this year will be an astonishment. That at the point at which the American world order was slipping fastest, it decided to effectively play games. This is what this era has in common with the late Roman Empire. That you do things that that, that people say, why did you spend your time talking about? bathrooms and about about magical unicorn beings that you need to find and elevate and worship and what what was it about the people in those days that they couldn't see the seriousness of the time they were in simply the answer it always is that you never know which act you're in in this life you never know how long the play is or whether you're in act one or act five or act three you don't know the thing that America has been good at, and America has always had this, as you know, this European-like lachrymose instinct, always worry that it's about to crash. At the, very, at the very least, that instinct keeps you limber. It keeps you fresh. It keeps you worried. It keeps you aware of what's at stake. What worries me about America is how few people realize what's at stake. They don't like the foundations of your republic. They don't like the founders. They don't like the whole thing. They think you're exceptional only in being exceptionally bad. They think the rest of the world is exceptionally good by comparison. And they've been taught this in America for two generations. And if you think that, then there's no reason to have dominance. There's no reason not to want China or anyone else to take over. But it would be sad for the rest of us. I wish you wouldn't.
0: Thank you very much. Well, we may not know which act we're in in life. This pod this 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 recording is in act 5, last question. We record this as Hanukkah is about to begin at sunset this evening. Over my shoulder you see a, a an, an advent calendar that came out of the attic because we used to have little kids in this house. So we're in the holidays. Give us one book you love one streaming series that you've fallen in love with one movie, give us something, something to enjoy over the holidays. Let's see, John. I love
1: the queen's gambit on Netflix, which is a, which is an eight part, eight hour, uh, mini series, uh, about a a brilliant, uh, chess player overcoming uh, a really tragic set of personal circumstances uh, in the oddest of places, 1950s Louisville, Kentucky. Hey, uh, John, ha- has
0: Louisville. the Queens Gamut got you playing speed chess with your kids?
1: Uh, I, I, My son plays chess. He's 10. And uh, I just, when he moves a piece, I move the same piece. And eventually he beats me. <laughs> I have no. I'm almost sixty. I have never figured out. I'm. I'm unable to look one move ahead of myself. Um, but uh, I. I sure love the fact that he loves it.
3: Got it, Douglas. Gosh, I actually did spend a lot of lockdown reading novels I meant to read for a long did you? time. Yeah. I uh, spent a lot of time reading Tolstoy and Grossman but I mean, these things if I recommend them it sounds like bragging as it does if I say that I actually did watch it all does.
2: of oh, oh, and I also
3: I also You're watched an Englishman. All, <laughs> it's just I also I watched all of the Sopranos from the beginning to the end and it's as good as people said. It wasn't, It was. Yes, it it's probably a bit late to say this now and to get on the bandwagon, but it was very good. Um, but uh, no, I tell you something I, I'm reading at the moment that's brought me enormous uh, joy. Uh, it's For me, it's been a bad year in losing good friends. Uh, mm. And um, uh, uh, Jonathan Sachs just passed away last month. A wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, earlier this year, Roger Scruton died. Uh, and uh, this time last year, a great friend, Clive James, passed away his final book has just been published and i'm just reading it at the moment and i'm doing that thing that you have to do with books like that and eking it out as slowly as i possibly can mm-hmm. um it, it's called the fire of joy and it's a book about the poems that clive james had in his head throughout his life and he they uh, published a poem often quite short and then just a couple of pages of clive saying why the Poem matters to him, what, what, he, what he thinks makes it so wonderful. It's an absolute. Rich, Clive James, you'd you
0: better give us, a, excuse me, it just occurs to me, you'd better give us a sentence or two. Clive James, Australian,
3: Australian-born critic, born critic uh, the greatest television critic of all time, uh, um, uh, sometime novelist, essayist, uh, um, famous he described uh, as a brilliant bunch of guys. He was, he was quite an extraordinary polymath.
0: Brilliantly uh, funny, extremely trenchant.
3: Yes, and, and, and a wonderful poet in his own right as well, I should say. But I just mention this because um, uh, uh, this, this book of Clive James, The Fire of Joy, I just can't recommend enough, brought to mind uh, something that another uh, great thinker died this year, George Steiner famously once said, which is, um, what you have up here, what you have in your head, the riches you have in your memory, why, why it matters so much to enrich this room, to furnish this room is among other things, that what you have up here As Steiner said, the bastards can't take from you. Uh, And and, and that is such an important thing, I think, to say to people is is just make sure that what you have up here, what you have in your mental furniture is rich and deep and meaningful. Because if you've got it up there, nobody can ever take it. I read during lockdown, Clive James's
1: second to last book, I guess, which is called Somewhere Becoming Rain, which Mm. which is a collection of essays about the poet Philip Larkin, which is also a, a glorious book. And um, Clive James also wrote this mock heroic, these Pope like mock heroic poems, uh, epics about London literary, show business, and political life um, that I read as a teenager, particularly one called The Perils of Felicity Fark mm-hmm. in the Land of the Media, that are. Were the wittiest things written in my my lifetime, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, go find his novel, Brilliant Creatures, his memoirs. I mean, he is somebody to
0: Kim, just Kim Strassel, dive into. No pressure, but we have just had the most fascinating conversation that anyone is going to hear or have through all of the holidays, and it falls to you, the last word. Okay. Poem, I don't know how I'm anything gonna anything you want to say keep, uh, for that matter.
2: I do like to, to read. I'm actually just because I, I couldn't read anything any more serious. I'm taking a, 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 a Christmas holiday in which I just do fun things. OK, just to make you feel good. So I'm clear currently reading Christopher Buckley's book, his latest book, Make Russia Great Again which is told them from the perspective of a a Donald Trump chief of staff who's writing to us from jail. And it's just immensely funny the way Buckley's books always are. Um, And so I highly recommend that. And then just to make this as lowbrow as possible, but as fun as possible, And every woman out there in America, this will resonate with them even if they won't admit it publicly. Uh, I have been watching the Hallmark Channel just because it doesn't get any better than that at Christmas. It's just awesome. Every single night, it's just another love story. And they often involve princesses or princes and it's happily ever after. And it's just incredibly happy. The kids can watch it too.
0: Do you, you, John and, and Douglas, do you realize the professional and psychological total sense of security that it implies that Kim is willing to admit in public that she's watching the Hallmark Channel.
2: I have no problem doing it, none whatsoever.
0: Fantastic.
2: I've read Proust, I've read Tolstoy, and I also love the Hallmark Channel.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's secret. That's America. That's America. That's America, America, America. Douglas, that's America. (laughs) Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas. John Pod Horitz, Douglas Murray, Kim Strassel, thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.